Hi, I'm Josh Gandy, and you're listening to No Proof. This podcast is an extension of my journey to discover closeness to myself and the outside world. Through mindfulness, the person I'm becoming since sobriety, and the healthy choices I'm learning about along the way. In each episode, I'll be speaking with someone with ties to sobriety, the bar and restaurant industry, wellness, recovery, or all of the above. There's no proof like the present. Thank you for joining us. You're listening to No Proof. I'm Josh Gandy. I'm joined today by Chef Philip Spear uh, out of Austin. And Chef, I'm super excited to chat with you today. I um, I learned of you through Andy Smith, who is one of the, the past episodes and connection of Ben's friends. Uh, but the more that I looked into you, the more fascinating your story became to me. And I was immediately attracted to um, Commodore Run Club, which I've been following on Instagram. And that's been a really great source of uh, inspiration. So thanks so much for joining me on the show today. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to tell you a little bit more about what we're doing down here. Yeah, it looks exciting. Um, but to, to just kind of jump into things, um, I, I wanted to know, because I had read around a little bit, but I, I wasn't aware. Had you tried to get sober before, what was it, 2015? Mm, 2014. It was October 14th, 2014 was my official sobriety date. Um, had I tried to get sober before, I had been asked to get sober before by um, various courtrooms and partners in life, whether they be romantic or business. Um, But I never, um, until this last go round, I had never really fully admitted uh, to being an alcoholic. I thought I was a life of the party, binge drinking, um, a bit immature at times, but, you know, high functioning um, person, uh, who, who, who liked, who overtook, who over, who overtook, uh, or, or sorry, who, uh, over partook many times, but I never thought of myself as having an actual problem. I, I could go weeks, uh, sometimes months without drinking. But the thing is every time I opened a drink, um, it was, I drank to blackout. So, um, alcoholism, it looks like all sorts of different things for different people. Um, you know, the, the typical like wake up and drink a bottle of vodka uh, doesn't always define alcoholism. Um, I, I went to work every day. I worked hard. I, I worked well. I had a lot of recognition for the work that I was doing as a chef. Um, so my in my mind, I worked hard, played hard, um, you know, and then the list of the list of supporting uh, the supporting cast of why I should have continued to drink and, and party the way I did. Um, it's, it's pretty, pretty normal. You know, I needed to network. I needed to travel. I needed to meet people. Um, but yeah, it wasn't until this last go around that I decided, um, or that I understood what alcoholism really is and how, uh, how it was affecting me. What made it stick this time? Um, well, I mean, I think for a lot of people, the the ending drinking for them is a catastrophe moment. Um, when you have those catastrophe moments, you understand that if you don't make a change, your life will not go the way you would like it to go. However, I think everyone's, and you hear that called rock bottom often, 
rock bottom moves and those catastrophe moments continue to get worse. So I had actually had a few already, a few very red flags um, that I had had ignored uh, by the way of DWIs and other um, legal, you know, missteps um, throughout my life and my career drinking. Uh, but this last one it was a fourth DWI. It was my second felony for drinking while intoxicated. Um, it was the, I don't know, sixth or seventh car I had totaled, the fourth one I had flipped. Um, so it was, it was bad, but beyond that, um, you know, my kids were understanding what was going on. Um, my, you know, I'd lost partnership in, in the company that I was with uh, due to this. I, um, you know, I, I went through some other pretty life-changing events due to, you know, 20 years of, of drinking and, and making really poor decisions. So, you know, my rock bottom was, it, it came hard and it came fast. Um, and, but it wasn't until, you know, going through this rehab that I had gone to and understanding, you know, the medical and physical effects of alcohol on your body and your brain. And then understanding, you know, that compiled with, you know, my, my family, my children, and, and what my career was that I, I saw that I had, to, I had no choice, but to make a change. Um, I, I really started making that change out of a necessity to, to be able to exist as a functioning per person in, in society um, be between being employed and being a father and, 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 and being able to, to do so. However, you know, when I really started to tap into the, the personal and, and mental and spiritual aspects is when I really understood that, you know, for my own sanity and health, the change had to have no bearing on any external factors. It had to have every, every reason had to come from inside. And, and that's what I understood over those first several months of sobriety. What did life start looking like for you once you made that change? Like, what, what was it like walking into the restaurant? Did you view that different? Was family life different? Yeah, I mean, everything was different. Um, did you, know, you feel like you belonged? And some, I mean, you know, I had been a chef for 20 years, almost 20 years before I quit drinking. So I, I often did not, I, I, I often felt like I belonged in, in restaurants and kitchens. Um, that feeling didn't really go away that should I be here, but it's more, more like, how do I be here? Um, not should I be here, but how do I be here? How do I exist um, in this area in, in this space in a new way? Um, there's, there's not only an expectation of how restaurant people uh, can and should behave, but it's a general acceptance of it. Um, and, you know, how do I interact in these situations do I have to keep going to bars and just pretending like I don't want to drink or, I mean, at the time I didn't want to drink. I was very mad um, at alcohol. I hated alcohol, but I, I you know, I, it's funny in that first year of sobriety, I'm like, okay, I still need to go to try and do this and try to keep my network up and I'm not going to drink and, and that's fine, but I still need to, to be around the bars and be, be in the restaurant after hours and having those connections. But, um, I learned that it wasn't necessary. Um, I learned that the culture of restaurants, um, I saw it from a different perspective and a different view. And I learned and understood that we all have the power to make that change and that shift in the culture of, of, of restaurants when it comes to, I mean, there are many facets to the culture of restaurants, but when it specifically comes to that lifestyle, um, 
I immediately saw a big physical difference um, in my in myself. I lost 100 pounds within the first year of drinking. I was pretty big uh, before I quit. I was 275 pounds, and I'm not a very tall or tall guy with a big frame. But that um, you know that physical difference, and then was something that you saw immediately. Um, I had to move on and, and do a different job. And so at first it was consulting. Um, I was grateful to, to have some friends and a network that allowed me to take some, some jobs on um, in a consulting aspect so I could be in and out of the restaurants um, as, as I chose. But, you know, I knew I was going to want to build a restaurant again. And so within, again, within about a year, year and a half, I was on the path to build another restaurant, uh, which was Restaurant Bonami. And when I did so, I made I wanted to make sure that I did it differently with a culture that was very different um, from the typical late night, you know, drinking at the restaurant, drinking after hours um, style of restaurants. And, and, and I definitely set out to do so with that restaurant. What a... Um... I've had some interesting conversations with some friends that are line cooks and stuff, such. And one of the more recent ones, um, we talked a lot about the shift beer, the mm-hmm. the post shift kind of like standing a, around the bar, um, you know, cracking a beer. What is uh? And and my, my friend who's a line cook was talking about. It, he's like, real leadership starts at the top, and it starts with little things like that shift beer. He's like, there were nights where I didn't really want a shift beer, but I would see you know, Sue or exec kind of like crack open that beer. And then that would just kind of like start the path of the night in a lot of ways. Do you have, uh, do you have thoughts on, on the shift beer or that sort of like starts it with leadership look at yeah. you know, drinking at the end of the night? Yeah. I have very strong opinions on shift beers <laughs> um, and shift drinks. I mean, there's, there are still restaurants in Austin and, and all over the country that um, on the bottom of the restaurant say buy the kitchen a beer um, one dollar, two dollars, whatever it may be, and I've never worked in one of those restaurants, but I know that those beers sort of ring ring up, um, and you have the ability to drink several of them at the end of your shift, depending on your restaurant's policies. But generally, it's it turns into a couple of twelve packs of beer in the walk-in cooler, uh, kind of on an honor system, is is how I understand it and have seen it. Um, also, um, yeah, just the, the expectation that, hey, you finished a long shift. My reward to you uh, is this beer, right? Well, not only does it put you in a place of, okay, cool, I want more beer now that I've had this one and, you know, I'm getting off my, my work high and I have a beer. And so that's kind of, you know, uh, sustained and it makes me want to go to another place, another restaurant, another bar um, to have more beers and everyone's having this beer together and we're like finish our beer and say okay cool let's get out of here and go go get more of these i think it's a terrible terrible culture and a really bad practice um we do not do them at our restaurants um we take that resource in which uh, we would have a shift beer and we do a few things different things with it um it, it, it allows us to run our run club uh we also do uh, one day a week yoga uh, with that, that, that resource because shift beers do cost money. Um, and we also were, whereas you may have a buy the kitchen, a beer line on your, your ticket, uh, or on your menu, we do a one and a half percent charge for healthcare. And so that allows us to pay for 85% of our staff's healthcare, um, by using those resources, other places. Of course we have, you know, it's not 
uh, it's not fully covered by that. Um, but there's, there's much better rewards, um, to your staff and giving them alcohol. Um, we collect gift cards and do trade out for gift cards around town. Someone has a great shift here. Here's a $25 gift card to this pizza place or this, this restaurant that uh, everyone loves here. Hey, here's a hundred dollar gift card to this higher end experience, whatever it may be. And we do uh, a lot of those things, a lot of other incentives that have nothing to do uh, with alcohol. And you see a big change when that happens. Um, a change in, in how people carry themselves. You see a much more efficient workflow. Um, people are working harder and faster to get out. Now, people still go out after work. And look, I'm not here to change that. There's, there's, that's a very attractive part of this industry. There's a lot of people that can go have a beer and drink responsibly and, and get home and make it to work the next day and not kill themselves or anyone on their way home, right? <laughs> but there's a pretty good sect of us that, that have a little more trouble with that. So, um, and I think that's more of a philosophical slash psychological, when taking a philosophical and psychological dive into what the restaurant industry is and who it attracts when you understand the amount of um, alcoholism that runs through it. How did you view, how did you view people's response to you um, changing. I mean, obviously the hundred pounds, it's a huge shift in the way you yeah. look. I'm sure like the way that you were, you were acting and holding yourself had to be different. What did, what did it feel like to, you know, for the people that usually surround you, are they treating you different? I mean, the majority of people that I surround myself with were, were, were happy to see that I had made some um, positive physical and mental changes. Um, you know, I, most importantly, my children were happy to see that and I was able to engage with them more in a, in a different way. Um, you know, at, my time, at the time I was married, um, she and I have, have since divorced, uh, but my sobriety led to, um, you know, well, everyone makes their own decisions, but, but, you know, I think, you know, I know in our partnership that my sobriety helped lead to her sobriety. Um, and then once we were both sober, we realized that it wasn't good for us to be together, but it was, it was great to make that decision from a sober mindset than a drunk, rather than a drunk mindset. Um, and, you know, other people uh, close to me and near me had looked at it and considered maybe not drinking themselves and maybe being healthier. Um, it had a, it had a definite ripple effect. Uh, so I think the majority of people viewed, viewed it as a very positive thing. Um, many people knew that it was a necessary thing for me to continue to, again, be a productive member of our, of our society. Um, and um, I also had this need to, and I've since worked on this, but this need to really show the world that I was capable of doing it, which is not really, I think, a good driving factor of making decisions, but um, it did drive, drive this decision for a little bit. I definitely understand that. Um... And it was, uh, you know, I was running a bar at the time that I had got sober as well. And I thought it was really fascinating the way that even like the, you know, my employees and the rest of the staff would just kind of like chat with me, like how the way that like, you know, conversation, I was approaching conversation would change, you know, before I was the person that like, if you wanted to go out, guarantee I would go out with you. Like if you wanted to have like 46 beers in one sitting, guaranteed I would go do that with you. And when I started, you know, when I presented my new self and I was like, I'm no longer 
that version that you knew that person's dead. This person is, you know, now running and talking about things that are, you know, healthier and hiking and all that. Um, when I thought I would see people kind of like turn and run from that because like viewing it as like the fun person is gone. It was really inspiring to see the people like just the way that they would change what they were talking about with me. Like instead of coming up and sharing those sort of like, man, I got so wasted stories last night. It was just like, Hey, I watched this on Netflix. I think you might like it. Or, Hey, I actually tried running this morning and like my, my feet hurt, but it feel really good. And it was just like really inspiring to see like, you know, just those very subtle shifts coming back in my direction when I thought, yeah, I was yeah, thought I was repelling. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, again, it, it, it definitely had a ripple effect. Um, and I think the time in which it happened with me was a time when um, you were seeing it across the country. You were seeing other chefs coming forward, um, saying, "Hey, we're, we're we're making a change. We're we're gonna we're gonna change the way we're doing this." And I think that carried on. Um, throughout different restaurant communities. And, and I know in Austin, there's, you know, I had sober chefs here that I looked up to who I was able to reach out to, um, who had had some years of sobriety beforehand, people who are still very good friends of mine and subsequently even in the run club. But there were some sober chefs nationally who were open about their sobriety that I was able to reach out to and, and um, really gain some perspective and a, a little bit of assistance through. So I just think, you know, for me, that timing, it's, it's very interesting. Like, you know, to be alive and, and, and active um, in the workforce in the restaurant community through this time of change, because it's a very noticeable and traceable time of change that's hap that's ha that has happened and is happening in the restaurant scene. What do you think's leading to to more of those? I, I, I guess I should say, like, are there more conversations happening, or is it just become are people becoming more aware of? of those conversations? I mean, it's the one goes, the one goes with the other. I think conversation begets more conversation, right? An openness to, to discuss these types of things, uh, an openness for, you know, leadership comes from the top down, right? So an openness in, in management and in chefs, you know, front management, front of back of house and even ownership to say, hey, we understand what it's like in the restaurant business we know there are options. We want those options. We, we want to present those options to you. Um, we want to listen. Um, you know, we've had several people leave our restaurant and go to a 30 day rehab and come back to a job um, because we understand that ultimately bettering themselves in that way is going to better our culture um, and uh, the longevity of that employee. So I think it's, um, you know, it's, it's a cycle. And I think just the easiest part of beginning that conversation leads to so much more. How do you, how do you identify those places that are open to those like open air forms of communication? Like as, you know, somebody applying for a job, like what questions do you ask or what are some of the tells of a, of a place that, you know, has that availability? Mm -hmm. So, I mean, for us, that was a very open story. Um, so people know that about, about me and my business partner as well. Um, my business partner is also uh, it's seven years of sobriety, um, and we have very um, similar thoughts on, on what that looks like in the workplace. Um, 
but I just, it's, it's, it, it begins in the interview process and openness of what your culture is. Um, and it's also in, in our employee handbook, the language around that is pretty obvious. Um, but you know, I, I, in every interview talk about the run club, talk about Ben's friends, talk about, speak about the no shift drink policy, speak about what we do with that resource, what it allows us to do weekly yoga that every staff member is invited to, you know, um, resources to put into the run club for whether it's gear or website or um, any other like PR that happens with the run club and being able to do so. Um, so I think that, you know, for us specifically, it's, it's an openness from the very beginning. Um, our managers, when they're, when they're hiring front of house staff, because, you know, I don't hire everyone in our restaurant, um, but our, um, our do that similarly. Also, you know, Comador is known to be a place that um, has those those options and those uh, those uh, that set of ideals around um, alcoholism and drug addiction in the workplace um, and beyond. You know, all of our philanthropic ethic, uh, efforts go specifically to drug and alcohol abuse um, programs, whether it's fundraisers for rehab centers that are free and open to anyone to, to join or um, specific causes for um, surrounded around drug and alcohol addiction. So for us, I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of a gleaming sign, like you just know. Otherwise, I think that if you're in the interview process, you're being, you're the interview E and, um, some very simple questions that you could ask. I've, I've never really thought about this. I'm actually glad you bring it up because I'd love to make a list of what those questions are. Like, what are the interview questions you ask to know if uh, an employer is mindful of um, of what drug and alcohol addiction and abuse looks like in the restaurant industry slash community? That's a great question. Um, let's 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 figure that out. Put on social media <laughs> yeah. for the world to see. You know that's that's really cool. You know, but I, it's it's a simple conversation. Hey, I'm an interviewee. You know, what is your culture around around drinking in the workplace? What you know, do you guys offer shift drinks? What what does that look like? At what point do you offer them? Have you ever considered not offering them? I mean, you, there's a fine line of uh, in an interview uh, between uh, of of asking questions and gathering information and challenging someone's. Um, policy but i think that you know that's it that's where it needs to start it needs to start with an openness and then you can feel that openness out have you had people in your um in your organization ever go to a rehab um did they have a job when they get back i don't know maybe you can't ask that in an interview i don't know i've never put any thought into this but i, I want to yeah same i mean that's it was kind of a uh, you know, fresh line of thinking for me. And I think like it kind of stems from, you know, maybe a lot of restaurants have never had to challenge themselves or they've never really had to like face any of this, or, you know, maybe they've never had the conversation or never had somebody on their staff who has ever had to like consider this. So, you know, I, I think it's an easy place to start with some really simple questions, even if it's just not from an interviewee, if it's, you know, as a owner, chef, bartender, kind of asking that questions of like the, the places that you hold as well. I think it could be really fascinating. Yeah, I'm making a little note to myself right now to, to, to look at this. I like that. So talk to me uh, Talk to me about the Run Club. How did it start? started out of necessity. It started out of uh, opening this, building and opening this restaurant um, and needing to go outside. Um, there's no windows in our kitchen, as most kitchens, as there are not in most kitchens. 
we have a closed kitchen, not an open kitchen. Um, and we're in this, what feels like a ship hole for hours a day working and working hard. Um, and we just needed to get outside and do something. And I am and was a runner at the time. Um, and a couple other chefs in the building have, you know, one was a cyclist, another one liked to work out often and, and run a little bit. And so uh, we're like, hey, let's just, let's go run. Let's go run around the block or let's go. Actually, the way our restaurant is set up, you, you can run over across the bridge and through a trail and back. Um, and it's a good, you know, couple mile run. And so we started doing that um, and we did it more and more. And as we were doing it, some of the other cooks, as we were hiring, and this is through the opening or pre-opening. And as we were hiring some of the other cooks um, in the kitchen to, to join the team, they were partaking. And then we jokingly were like hashtag Commodore Run Club on our Instagrams. Um, and then some of the other, you know, some of our other industry brethren across uh, the downtown area are like, hey, I want to come join y'all. Um, so we formulate, you know, we, we formulated a, a plan. Hey, let's do this, this many days a week at this time for this distance. And let's really make a run club. Um, I had some other, some other running friends, uh, a friend of mine, Robbie Ballinger, um, who always kind of wanted to do some sort of industry run club as well. We talked about it a little bit, another, um, chef owner who is also sober, James Robert, um, and a restaurant just down the street from us was, was an avid runner and um, had had many years of sobriety. He's actually someone I looked up to in, in sobriety. Um, and so we would go, we'd go running. He started joining us. And before we knew it, we, there was 20, 30 people running uh, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, at 10 AM, a 5k. Um, you know, there are other people, other chefs in the industry who are sober um, around the country who, you know, uh, Gregory Gorday in Portland or um, Gabriel Rucker, also in Portland, um, runners and, and sober chefs. And, and they, uh, Gabriel, Chef Gabriel started a, a run club up in Portland as well called Bird Dog Run Club. Um, and it just sort of grew and people from different restaurants and bars and hotels and coffee shops would come join us. Now we have runners that come and join us. People come through town and they're looking for a run club to run with. They reach out to us on social media or on the website and like, Hey, is this open to anyone to run? Which it is. And we're, you know, all are welcome. We really want to make sure that people of any, not only any athletic ability, but any sort of background, um, whether it be, you know, I'm in the industry, I'm not in the industry. I, I am a runner. I'm not a runner. I'm a would be runner. Um, I mean, I think we're all runners. Um, and then offering a different time to do so. Uh, we do it at 10 a.m. rather than the typical, you know, running group time of six. You know, it's more of that urban run come feel where you're running in the middle of the day or in the evening times. So we have some evening runs as well. Um, and it just, you know, it turned into a run club with a mission that, you know, really aims to shift the, the hospitality culture around that post-shift drink that, 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 that we were just talking about. In fact, our, our main hashtag on social media is shift the post shift, but it's also our tagline. Um, but we really want to shift the, we want to create a new space for people to meet in the restaurant and food and beverage profession that is outside of a bar, uh, maybe at a different time of day. You know, instead of meeting at midnight at a bar, which is one of the only places you can meet at midnight, can we meet at 10 a.m., 9 a.m., stretch, have some coffee, run at 10 a.m., and then go to work? Um, while there's still time in the day to do so, but you also don't have to work up, wake up at 5.30 a.m. to get a run on. 
Um, so it's been really cool and we've had a lot of great um, a reception of that in our community, which has been awesome. That's super cool to hear. What's that do for the energy within the restaurant afterward? Oh, that kind of that runner's high kind of linger on. Uh, for the show? Yeah, absolutely. It absolutely does. And people are talking about it. And there's a, the, you know, I've seen, I've seen a lot of changes. I've seen people in the rest in our restaurant stop smoking. I've seen people in our restaurant stop drinking. I've seen family meals get healthier, you know, people thinking about that a little bit more. Um, yeah, it's, it's made a big shift. That's so awesome. And the, uh, the 10 AM is much more attractive. I don't think anyone should see 6 AM unless they're a parent or going to the airport. Right. <laughs> <laughs> So, uh, how long had you, have you been running? Did you run before you were sober? No. How'd um, you find I did, it? I did not find run before I was sober and in my rehab center, um, the rehabil- rehabil- rehabilitation center that I went to, um, here in Texas, there was a fitness trail that kind of went through the woods and around this area with some like pull-up bars and such, um, at the rehab center. So I just kind of out of boredom and a necessity for some sort of physical outlet which just started walking around that trail um no intention of going up there and becoming a runner i didn't have running shoes like it was just something that um, i wanted to check out and then i started jogging around the trail Um, once i left the rehab facility I, i got some running shoes and there's a there's a trail right near my house um and i was without a job um and without a lot of interaction from any friends or family at that point. So I spent a lot of time running on that trail and um, it just felt good. I started losing a lot of weight and changing habits, you know, and rehab. I quit drinking soda, I quit smoking cigarettes, I quit drinking alcohol and any other thing associated with alcohol, um, which were a lot of drugs. And I began um, to just lose weight and feel healthier and breathe better. Um, and kept running and running and running and um, it never stopped within, within a year. I ran the New York marathon following year, I ran the Chicago marathon, I run every organized race in the city of Austin um, and just really kind of embrace the, the culture around running. Uh, I remember going to um, New York before the New York marathon and linking up with some urban run crews there and that feeling of running around the city with the, these run crews, I likened to when I skateboarded and I would skateboard through the city with, with people and it had that same feel of community and connection. Um, but it wasn't like a running group. It wasn't like, this isn't a fitness, this isn't a workout. This is a thing we do to, have, to connect and have fun and explore and be present. Right. Um, unlike a lot of running groups that are like, this is your workout. You get here at 530 and we're going to run this and we're going to run this and we're going to train for this. Like this was, this was community. Um, that's really what I wanted to do. You know, personally, I did want to do a run club, um, back in Austin, a few years had gone by and I, I never did. Um, and then, so when this all kind of fell together with Commodore, um, and the Commodore run club idea turning into something real, um, it, it really satisfied that, that desire as well. Yeah, definitely. And I, I think like you, you said one word that like really resonates with me, which is exploration. And it was just like, it wasn't until like I started running where I felt like more in tune with my city. I felt like I was getting more from the cities that I visited 
And it was just like, but there's something about like the runner's mindset. And when you link up with people that run in their own city and like the way that they want to show you their city through a run is like drastically different than the way yeah. it would be if you were just going on like a, a food tour. And then that made me think about like, uh, you know, your run club as well, like how important it is, I think, to have those things outside of the, the after work, post shift, post drink sort of thing, because like, you know, you, you spend so much time with your coworkers and your employees and you think, you know, them, but you only sort of know them in those four walls, unless you kind of like remember right. that in a bunch of ways. And I think like a run clubs is a, such a fascinating way to kind of like more deeply understand the people that you surround yourself with and then get, get to use it as a way of like, you know, exploring the city and exploring, um, you know, the, the mental side of things. So I think it, what you're doing sounds super cool, chef. That's fun. Thank you. And it is fun. And, you know, we, we're, we're purposefully a little showy. We have the, we, you know, we, we spend our resources, our own often on gear and then we resell it. We take the reselling of that gear to buy more gear, buy race entries. We do partnerships with, uh, shoe companies or clothing or gear and we do all this and then we're very active on instagram and we want it to be attractive right we want people to come and run with us and we do it to to attract and and spread the idea um, since we've started the run club i've had several restaurant professionals or food and uh, beverage professionals reach out in different cities and say hey how can i do this or we're gonna do this too right um and that's amazing um because I think that it's something that's, that's met again, it's necessary. There's a, there's a group in Toronto. Um, is it Toronto or Montreal? That's no, Toronto. A group in Toronto called the Food Runners. Um, and they have a similar mission. It's, uh, it's, um, they're very inspiring. They have many runners from different restaurants. They're more of an umbrella running crew for, for their community. And then other restaurants will come and join them. Um, and I think what they do up there is so cool too. Um, yeah, it's it's it's, it's really neat. I'm, That's I'm, an awesome I'm, I'm name, by the way. Super, it is, <laughs> and I feel super grateful to have to have had support um, around this and to have had people to collaboratively build this um, into into what it is. And you know, I spent a lot of <laughs> I probably spent twenty percent of my my time on Run Club. Um, which is unheard of um, in the, you know, 20% of my professional time on run club, which is unheard of in the restaurant industry. But my partner and I, and, and everyone around this agrees that it's important. It's important for our, um, it's important for our culture and it's for, important for the physical and mental health of our restaurants. Um, but it's definitely not the only thing there, you know, start, start your own club, start a cycling club, yeah. start a yoga club, start, just do something different. Right. Let's create some new places to hang out. By no means do I think the Commodore Run Club is 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 the answer to to everyone's um, you know all, all the deficiencies in the restaurant industry. However, it's an answer, um, and I encourage and look for other ways to to find these answers as well. Um, there's so many things we can do differently, should do differently. I totally agree, and it's. Uh... You know, I, every time that I go out for a run, I intentionally like take some photos and then post it. So I, yeah. I'm totally on board with being as showy as possible yeah, no, I follow, because a lot of follow the, social media now and see that it's awesome. A lot of like the comments or like messages that I get are people just saying like, man, you make running look so fun. I wish I could do it. And I was like, 
you can, (laughs) you know, I look back at like when I first started, I was hitting like 13 minute miles and now they're like high six, low seven. I was like, if I could do it like straight off the couch and some clunky Nikes, you two can do it. Like it's free. It's free. It is outside. And that's a big part of it too. Um, We can all do it. That being said, you know, once you start really getting into it and start incorporating the gear and, and all of that, and that's another reason we actually want to form into a, a nonprofit. We're working on that right now um, to have, you know, resources for um, mental and physical health, but also to have resources for people who have never had running shoes, um, who want to run and, and work on, you know, notoriously low wages and maybe won't go buy themselves a pair of $120 running shoes or, or different running gear. And what we have also learned is when people enter races, it totally changes the way they look at it. Um, we have people in the run club who've never even dreamed of any doing an organized race or an organized run. And now they're addicted to them. Um, uh, be careful with that word addicted, but now they're really excited by them and do them often. Um, and it's, it changes, it, it, you know, people who have never identified as athletic or, or interested in fitness are now identifying as runners um, and as athletes. And they are, we all are. Yeah. And that's something that like, really, I, I've talked about a couple of times, but it was weird. I ran for way longer than I considered myself a runner. Mm-hmm. And it was, uh, I kind of took that, that weird, you know, click where just kind of, you know, one day I said it out loud and it like felt right. And I was like, wow, I, I yeah. am a runner. And <laughs> a lot of it had to do with, you know, like signing up for races and, you know, trying to be better than I was yesterday. Yeah. And getting a Garmin, right? Oh, I have to. Yeah. Right. <laughs> you know, you're a runner when you get a, a device. Um, yeah, no, I remember I often did not identify as a runner and I had run, I had run two of the world's largest marathons and still didn't identify as a runner. And finally someone's like, dude, you're, I don't know what your block is, but like you, <laughs> you have a run club and have run marathons. You're a runner. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, I guess so. And I just never identified as a, a person who's, um, an athlete or into fitness in that way, or, or being such a big part of my life. Um, and it is, and it's made my life better. So it's awesome. Yeah. That's super cool. Um, so how did you get turned on to Ben's friends? Where did your involvement with that start? Um, I had heard about Ben's friends a few years ago, maybe almost three years ago, something that had started on the East coast and, um, Charleston and had interest in it. And I'd actually reached out to them a couple of times, but you know, they're, I didn't, um, at that time, didn't hear back. They were, they had a lot going on and then trying to get this launched and, and figure out how they were doing it. Um, and then the a chef actually I spoke of, or a couple of chefs I spoke of earlier, both uh, Gregory Gorday and, and Gabriel Rucker who were involved, ended up becoming involved in French friends when they added, when they began adding cities outside of their, their area. Um, I think, I think Minneapolis was first. Actually, there's no longer a chapter there. But then they went to Portland and Seattle before they came down to Texas. And, and uh, Chef Rucker was down here. And we went for a run. And I told him, I was like, man, I want to be the I want to be the Texas Ben Friends guy. He's like, cool. Let me put you in touch. So he put me in touch with Mickey Basks and Steve Palmer. And they hit, they reached out to me through the um, the blessing of, of the Portland team, which was Gabriel Rucker and Gregory Gorday. Um, and then they said, so they came down 
to meet me and checked out space and tell me more about Ben's friends and inducted us into the, the Ben's friends circuit. Um, so my business partner and I are the co-chair, um, and I, I host the majority of the meetings, um, but he's always there in the meetings or, or, or available to, to host if, if I have something. Um, but we, uh, we had in-person meetings up until the pandemic, and then we have Zoom meetings. Um, the Zoom meetings allowed Ben's friends to grow significantly uh, from seven meetings a week to 23 meetings a week over the course of a couple months. Um, and now I lead two meetings. I would lead a, the local Austin meeting um, on Mondays at 11 a.m. Central Time. And then I run the national meeting on Saturdays at um, 12 p.m. Central Time. And um, we're soon going to be back into meeting in person for the local meetings, but the national meetings will continue to exist on Zoom because it's been really cool to see all the people come over from, come into the meetings from all over the country um, and then learn what's going on in the communities all over, uh, all over every coast and every part of the country. That's super cool. Yeah. It's, it. a, it's especially exciting, exciting, you know, to kind of the proverbial light at the end of the tunnel seems to be taking shape for a lot of people. So uh, it, it's really exciting and inspiring to hear all the stuff that you're doing. And uh, I want to keep in touch because I want to hear, you know, if you come up with those uh, questions to ask an employer. Or, I'm, you know, I'm going to work on the, that tonight. That's awesome. I love that. <laughs> and uh, I'll, next time I'm in Austin, I definitely am going to hit up the the Run Club. I want to I want to scoot with you guys. Um, but I really can't thank you enough for taking the time and, and chatting with me today. It was really awesome to connect yeah. with you and to, to hear all the exciting stuff that you're doing. You as well. Thank you for reaching out, and thank you, Andy Smith, for for dropping our name. Um, you know, this community we have across the country is much smaller than it seems. And so it's always great to speak to another a fellow um, industry professional, but also a fellow runner. So thank you for reaching out. That's no proof. Thank you for listening. And if you liked what you heard or are interested to hear more, make sure to like and subscribe on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you get your podcasts. Music was written and recorded by my brother, Kyle, right here in Columbus, Ohio. To pick up an NA enamel pen and other great barware, head to moverandshakerco.com. More info and other shows like the Focus on Health podcast with Alex Jump can be found at fohealth.org. That's focusonhealth.org.